Let's read now from John chapter 7, verses 53 to chapter 8, verses 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Daniel. Uh, thanks for being here with us this morning. <clears throat> um, have you ever had an experience that left you with more questions than answers? Or ever watch a movie or read a book and felt like the ending was unsatisfactory? Or often hear a story and feel like too many details are missing? Or better yet, do you have friends who begin a story in the middle and don't set it up quite right so you have no idea what they're talking about? Well, this feels like that. The story of the woman caught in adultery feels this way. We find ourselves in the middle of the action, the middle of the story. A woman is dragged by religious men towards Jesus, who had been at the temple since early morning. No particular description of the woman or the men are given other than the fact the men are Pharisees or scribes, religious teachers or leaders who were the leaders of the Jewish law and tradition, well-known legal experts, and the woman, an adulterer who had been caught in sin, a breaker of the law, and that's all we know. As you read this story, do you have as many questions as I do? It feels like the text does an inadequate job of giving us enough detail to the story. This passage seems to raise more questions than I'm comfortable with. And there are lots of questions that go unanswered in this short text about the woman caught in adultery. Questions like, who are these men? And why is it that religious men are dragging her to Jesus? What does Jesus have to do with the situation? Or who is this woman? Was she single? 
engaged, married, we don't know, what previous relationships you may have had with any of these men particularly, we don't know. Is she young or middle-aged? We don't know. Or how about, how do they catch her? Or where's the offender, the other party? Because there's two, typically, in an adulterous relationship, and one is missing. Where is the man? And why only the woman? Or my biggest question is what is it that Jesus writes on the ground with this finger? Twice. I don't know. Well, first things first, uh, if you open up your Bible uh, and to that section in chapter 7, verse 53, you will notice that this section is in parentheses. With these words preceding our text or such words in the footnotes, the earliest manuscripts do not include the passage we're looking at this morning, 753 to chapter 8, verse 11. Mine says, if you look in the footnotes, some manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. Others add the passage here, or after 736, or after 21 verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, or after Luke 21, 38, with variations in the text. In other words, we have no clue where it should go, or if it should be in the Bible at all. Let me just make some quick, very quick assurances here. While some scholars debate such matters, for one, the early church fathers, uh, fathers like Augustine or Jerome or Ambrose, they all believe that there was no reason it should not be included in this section. Reformers like John Calvin, the great reformer in the 1500s, talked about this passage as well. Or... There are later manuscripts, about 900 of them, that include this particular passage. And you may be familiar with this one. Uh, he, is, he who is without sin, be the one to cast the first stone. That story is found just here. So let's start with that, uh, packing the, unpacking the passage here. These men, religious leaders, they rip this woman out of an adulterous relationship, maybe caught in the act, drag her towards the temple, slam her in front of Jesus, and with what I imagine to be a large crowd gathered for this spectacle. And I think because so little information is given, I imagine all sorts of scenarios of how this goes down. The husband discovers text messages. Text exchanges between his wife and another man and conjures up a plan to take this woman down. Or perhaps a jealous wife, instead of exposing her cheating husband, looks to ruin his lover's reputation and life by posting nasty comments on Facebook of this homewrecker. Or maybe I'm taking my cues from Hollywood and reading too much into the story. I guess we'll never know. But to be sure, the law was given to Moses by God, and the law was very clear. Whatever we think about the situation or whatever we think might have happened in this particular story, we know that this woman was caught in this act of adultery and the law was clear about the consequences of sin. 
We're told in the Ten Commandments, chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Or Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, even who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. And this morning we find ourselves with the woman who's been dragged to the temple, who is guilty, caught in the act. Nothing in the text suggests her innocence. And under the law, both parties should have been there to be stoned, put to death. And according to the Old Testament passages like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it was, to, it was supposed to happen at the city gates. The first witness would hurl the first stone, a small boulder, and the second witness, the next one, and so on, typically causing a quick death. But the question again is, where is the man? Here are some of my thoughts. Perhaps the fact that the man is absent from this story might give us pause as to the real intention of the Pharisees and the scribes in bringing this woman in front of Jesus. Our text this morning tells us that they did so to test Jesus, to trap him in his words. When the guilty man was not present, Jesus knew their motive. Perhaps this man was influential or an important person in the community or whatever it is, whatever reason, he isn't there. But it gives us a, a good glimpse, a deep glimpse, a deep look at the motive and the intentions of the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes who bring just the woman before Jesus. This is not the first time or the only time that the leaders, the religious leaders of the law, uh, try to catch Jesus in his own words, some self-condemning answer. You know, I mean, there are numerous places in Scripture. I mean, you might remember the time that they bring a, a coin to Jesus and say, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, if he answers yes, pay taxes to Caesar, he would have been seen as a traitor to Israel. If he answered no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then perhaps he would have been seen as an insurrectionist. In this story, the Pharisees ask a loaded question. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to sown such women. So what do you say? I mean, you're familiar with questions like this, aren't you? I mean, I was a philosophy major in college. I don't know if you knew that about me or not, but, you know, there's fallacies and there's questions like, uh, have you stopped beating your wife? You know, how do you answer questions like that? Or have you stopped cheating on your exams? It assumes you've cheated or you've beaten in the past or assume you're still doing it if you answer in the negative. Or in philosophy, we ask questions like, could God create a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it? The religious leaders fire questions to trap him. They are not coming from a desire to get to know more about him. They question him in regards to uh, things like, should we pay taxes to Caesar? There are questions about the resurrection. You know, a, a man had uh, a, a 
a woman, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think of the story, of a woman had seven husbands, right? They were all siblings of one another. And they're asking questions about the resurrection. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? I mean, how do you answer questions like that? Or questions about the Sabbath? All sorts of questions to trap Jesus in his words. And here, questions about what to do about adultery, particularly this woman standing trial before them. No matter which answer Jesus gave, it seemed like he would get himself into trouble. If Jesus said, yes, she should be put to death, he might be seen as rebellious towards Rome since the Jews did not have the right to capital punishment. And if he said she should not be put to death, that would appear to be a violation of the Old Testament. It would put him at odds with Moses. Either way, he would be in trouble. In my honest opinion, these men really could care less about this woman. To them, she is simply this woman. To them, she's just bait to trap Jesus. And perhaps that's the reason why the man isn't there. So what does Jesus do? He bends down. John chapter 8, verse 6 says, he wrote with his finger on the ground. And then once again in verse 8, once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And I ask, huh? What did he write? What did it say? He stoops down twice to write something on the ground. John, why not include this in the text? I mean, doesn't this drive you crazy? It does me. John, give us a little bit more information. Can you please tilt your camera downward so we can get a glimpse of what Jesus is writing? If this was cinematography, John, you're doing a horrible job. I mean, I know if I, I, I look at this text and I say, if I could have a little bit more information, I could be a better judge of whether Jesus is making the right decision or not. I don't know. None of us know. We can only speculate. But perhaps, perhaps, John doesn't record what Jesus writes in the sand. Maybe because it isn't that important. Maybe it isn't crucial to the story. Maybe it's not critical to our understanding of the point of this event. If you get caught up in the details, like you miss the point. You know, ever think about sin and try to justify, like that's the point that Jesus wanted you here. These men wanted to focus on the woman. And I will tell you right now that this story, this narrative, this gospel story is not about the woman at all. These men want to focus on the woman and Jesus wants to talk about them. He answers, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. And one by one, they begin to disappear until she's the only one left. They want to trap him, and they end up trapped by Jesus. 
But here's the thing, the most perplexing and the most profound question of all, the ultimate dilemma in all of this theological thoughts is this. It's not, will Jesus be a traitor to Rome or a traitor to Israel? The question is not, will he be rebellious to Rome or be at odds with Moses and the law of God? The question is not, will he break Roman law or deny the Mosaic law? There are lots of questions that arise from this text, more than we can answer and more than we're comfortable with. But the ultimate question and the ultimate dilemma has to do, I think, with the character of Jesus. It's this. If God, if God is a God of righteousness and a God of justice and a God of judgment by his holy nature, and the woman caught in adultery must die. And if God is a God of love and of grace and of kindness and of mercy and forgiveness, then she has to live. And the dilemma is, how do you bring to harmony these two contrasting ideas? As I was making sure I could in good conscience preach a passage with parentheses, I came across one argument for the exclusion of this text based on the fact that Jesus seems to be too lenient on sinners. Perhaps that's the reason why copyists omitted the story because it seemed to make Christ too lenient on this adulterous woman caught in the sin. I mean, isn't he letting her off too easy for such a flagrant, shameful sin? I mean, shouldn't she have gotten what she deserved? I mean, is this a narrative about whether Jesus will be soft or hard on sin? I mean, how is it that the Bible can say, I will punish you for all your iniquities, and at the very same breath, he forgives our transgressions? It seems like a paradox. How can a God of justice forgive sin? Or how can a God of love punish sin? I will tell you as we read texts like this, it is most important that the reader realize that Jesus does not set aside the laws of God or make an exception. That's not what happens in this story. It's not like God changes his mind or had a softening, right? That he goes from this real hard dad in the Old Testament and somehow becomes soft, a soft father in the New Testament. That a God was a God of wrath in the old, but had somehow, somehow evolved to a God of love and grace and compassion in the new. I don't think so. I think the answer can be found in the last two verses of the section this morning. The irony is that Jesus was the only one who could condemn her, and yet this is the exchange. In verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
I mean, think about the, the questioning women. Where are they? And she says, no one is here to condemn. And so he says, well, neither do I condemn you. He forgives her sin. And then he challenges her, go now, leave your life of sin. And here is the gospel. Being pardoned when we deserve death and being told to go and sin no more is not a warning. It's an invitation to a new life and transformation by grace. You know, it's funny, many in the early church thought that if uh, grace was really free, and particularly as we think about whether you can truly have the assurance of salvation, they thought, um, they thought it would be easier to sin and it would give greater license to sin. And John Wesley, one of them, thought it would make Christians lazy. Friends, nothing motivates the heart like grace. Nothing motivates the heart than someone who deserves punishment and receives grace and mercy. Friends, grace does what rules can never do. Lest anyone think adultery doesn't matter, that Jesus, uh, he plays it down. Jesus doesn't say it's no big deal or I'm going to let it slide this time. It's not your fault. He forgives her sin and then he sends her forth to live a brand new life. Even though she is guilty, caught in the act, by God's grace, she leaves with a clean slate, a new life, a new power to obey. Perhaps you come this morning, you lived a few years, and you have a closet full of questions. I don't know what brings you to church this morning, what questions you have about God, about his character. Are you a God who punishes iniquities? But are you a God who forgives transgressions? And we, leave some, we live somewhere in the middle of these two places. And perhaps you've come this morning thinking, nobody knows about my sin. I've done so many things that nobody knows about. And there's a guilt, and there's a shame, and there's a brokenness, and there's a fear deep, deep down. You know, I know that, uh, again, when we read through stories like this, perhaps no sin results in as much shame and guilt and embarrassment and remorse as sexual sin. And as Jesus will point out in the New Testament, it's not just what's acted out, it's the thoughts. What if Jesus can read your thoughts? Or what if your coworkers can read your thoughts? I mean, there's nothing as embarrassing. I mean, I, I don't know. You think about all this thing and uh, all the, the sins in your life and you think, uh, I don't know if I can come to God. Nobody knows. 
And this woman was caught in the act. Can't imagine the embarrassment that goes with something like that. You expect the full weight of the law to cram- come crashing into you. The power to, bra- uh, the power to break you. And, uh, and yet, yet it's Jesus who says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Perhaps you come this morning and you think there's something you've done that you don't think can be forgiven. But here's the order of Christ's words. The order of Christ's words are very important. He doesn't say, sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Get your act together, and then I will accept you. You better make things right. And then I'll love you. That's what religious people like to say. Sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. But Jesus says, I will forgive you and give you the power to break free from a life. Religion says, change or I will condemn you. Grace says, I have forgiven you. Now let me change you. Perhaps that's what prevented you from coming to, to Christ. You'll never be good enough. You think about all the different ways that you need to be better and to get your act and your life in order to come to Jesus. And yet Jesus, he, he meets and encounters a woman who is caught in the act, doesn't have it together, and forgives her sin, and then tells her sin no more. Or perhaps you've come this morning thinking that compared to others, you're pretty good. And people like this woman should be condemned. I will say that God cares for you too. That God loves the younger prodigal, the one who runs away from home and squanders his father's inheritance on wild living. As much as he loves the older one who has stayed home, and complains how the father has not killed the fattened calf for him. I love that we've been going through the book of Romans in our Bible study because the chapters one through four, um, this is not a sermon on Romans, I think I can get to that later, but uh, Romans chapter one through four talks about those uh, who are condemned because of the, the wild living. And that gets to the the Jewish leaders and those who have been living a good life and says, well, you too are condemned under the law. As I read through passages like this, I ask the question, is God good? And the answer is a, res- a resounding yes. Is God loving? And do I have worth? And the answer is yes. He's not just let her slide in her sin. He forgives her. For I think when he said to that woman, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. You know what I think? He knew in his heart at that very moment, the divine heart, he knew full well that he would die on a cross for her adultery. 
that he would know that. That was the only way, the only reason that he could give her forgiveness because of what he would bear in his own body for her sin. It was the only way, and he knew it. It was the only way that he would be able to forgive her because the sin of adultery and the sin of murder and the sin of the Ten Commandments would hang there on the cross, and he would remember every name and every sin and every wrongdoing and every time we fall in shorts of the glory of God. And he would know all these things, both past and present and future sins, and he would see all these things that not only, not only what this woman caught in adultery would do, but every person who had ever lived, including you and I, he would know that as he hung on that cross, he would bear the judgment for our sins. That is not a God who lets things lets things slide. God punishes your sins and mine by placing it on his son.